The following conversation originally aired January 19, 2022, on the Wednesday edition of The Point with Marianne Hart and Louise Kaplan on KPOV 88.9 High Desert Community Radio in Bend. It is a pleasure to welcome back Dr. Jim Foster, Professor Emeritus of Political Science and founding faculty member of OSU Cascades. Before coming to Ben, Dr. Foster was chair of the Department of Political Science for 12 years on the Corvallis campus. He has taught courses on constitutional law, administrative law, gender and law, and American political thought. Welcome back, Dr. Foster. Thanks, everybody. It's good to be back. Thank you for having me. And before we begin, I need to let our listeners know that the opinions expressed on the show today are those of Professor Foster and Louise and myself, and in no way represent those of KPOV, its board, staff, or members. So now that we've gotten that out of the way, we can say whatever we want to. Oh, boy. Yippee. (laughs) (laughs) So, Jim, um, the last time we talked was in June. And it was just after President Biden's first 100 days. And we talked a little bit about that, among other things. So it's been a year now since the inauguration. And just to get us started, what do you think of the job that uh, President Biden has done? Has he met the expectations of the American public? Has he met all the promises that he said he was going to do? Because there are so many different factions and points of view and positions and interests all in this kind of cauldron of a boiling pot. Temperature has now been turned way up because as we cross the threshold into uh, 2022, guess what? It's an election year, and that means all bets are off. So the answer to your question really depends on who you're talking to. If you're talking to um, uh, Joe Manchin, you're going to get an answer that's going to be different than if you're talking to Bernie Sanders, which is going to be different than Kevin McCarthy or Jim Jones. You've got lots of different factors in play, lots of different uh, individuals in play. So I I don't think, as I say, there's no simple answer to that question. I mean, Joe Biden came in with two clear visions. One is to deal with the the pandemic, and the other is to deal with all the infrastructural problems in the United States. He's made a, he's taken one bite from the apple in terms of infrastructure concerns. He has managed the uh, COVID pandemic um, exceptionally well under trying circumstances, and yet he's now hit a wall. And that that wall comes in the the form of two, um, two uh, senators uh, of the United States who have simply dug in their heels and said, we're not going to play ball. So it's hard to see where his approval rate goes up from here. Um, and the, the, the frustrating thing is that the very time his numbers are down, the, the number of challenges he faces and his administration faces um, is way, way up. And probably zooming to the top of that list is um, whatever Vladimir Putin is going to do in Ukraine. Well, um, just to mention, you know, to support what you just said, his poll numbers are so bad. Quinnipiac University poll released this week found that Biden was at 33 percent approval and 53 percent disapproval. And Economist YouGov poll found him at 43 percent approval and 50 percent disapproval. And the Washington Post average of December polls showed 43 percent approval and 51 percent disapproval. So it just adds more pressure on him to try to accomplish the things that he wants to accomplish. That's, that's right. And those numbers are ephemeral as well, too. If anything happens, um, it's the, 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 it might galvanize support for him um, or it might uh, further erode support for him. He's in a very, very difficult position, as I say, of having to face at, at, at the same time a number of intractable problems that do not lend themselves to um, um, easy um, 
I was going to use the word solution, but the word solution doesn't even bear any relevance. Just addressing the problems is going to be different um, and difficult. And we're going into crazy land. I think on during our conversations previously, um, Louise and Marianne, I've said to you that um, it seems to me that modern American politics is scripted by George Orwell and Lewis Carroll. There's a whole lot of room for the absurd. And clearly, crossing that threshold, I, I indicated on January 2022, we're right, we're really gone down the rabbit hole, and we've got some really serious issues that we've got to deal with. I, in preparing for our conversation today, I just jotted down a number of um, topics slash issues slash problems that uh, the Biden administration is facing, and I think we should just kind of one way to, to approach our conversation is go through these various topics. But I don't want to pre preempt or preclude anything you guys want to start use to use the conversation starter. I think we're on the same page. I mean, I, I think uh, the, the ones that I have highlighted are COVID, climate, economy, immigration, domestic policy, foreign policy. So I would imagine that ours probably match somewhat. Where would you like to start? I would start with the probably the largest problem facing American government and politics and, and Americans as citizens these days. The single biggest problem is big lie. Big <laughs> lie is has been uh, perpetrated on the American people since um, since before the election in 2000. Um, it's remarkable that uh, the man himself, um, Don Giovanni Donald Trump, the Don of the um, Trump mafioso, and by the way, sidebar, mafia, the, the prosecutor in the state of New York and in the city of, of New York City yeah. are beginning to close out on Trump and all of his kids for... Um, fraudulent practices. So prior to the election, the presidential election, Trump was already preparing the grounds for um, challenging the election by promulgating this um, this big lie. And so I think one of the first things, if, if we can think of this conversation as a guide to the conscientious citizen in 2022, at the top of my list would be able to distinguish between the big lie and fantasy land on the one hand and uh, hardcore facts which can help us understand situations on the other. Thoughts about that? Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, it's so funny because when you talk, when I talk to some people, they see the world in a completely different uh, way than other people that I talk to. On one hand, it's accepted that, yeah, you've got a pandemic happening. There's a vaccine. We believe in science. We're going to go do all the things that the scientists have recommended. We're going to do absolutely what we should. To, I mean, that's just one example. And on the other hand, you have people that are like COVID, what COVID? Shrugging their shoulders as if it doesn't exist at all. Uh, I don't know exactly schism, whatever it might be that uh, leads us to have uh, two different ways of looking at the world, depending on which side of the political spectrum we sit. So, uh, Dr. Foster, do you have any way to advise us to move beyond this? I have a couple of points. First of all, that we fully understand what facts are in, as distinguished from opinions. Facts are, this. Um, here I'm quoting a 20th century political philosopher by the name of Hannah Arendt. Facts are, um, are those indestructible kinds of elementary data that cannot be denied. A couple of examples. No one would deny, well, I take that back. Very, very few people would <laughs> Very, very few people would deny that two airplanes crashed into the World Trade Center on November 11th. And very few people would um, deny that the Japanese Navy and Air Force attacked Pearl Harbor on the 7th of um, 
December 1941. Those are indisputable facts. There's having a different opinion about that is not going to change the independent existence of the attack on Pearl Harbor and the attack on the Twin Trade Towers. Now, it gets a lot dicier when we get closer to our own time. It's difficult to say that uh, the insurrection on January 6th was a fact. For most of us, it was a fact as we watched it unfold on television. And yet there are numbers of people who would question, including the former president of the United States, who would argue that that really was not an insurrection and would go to the, the, the extreme, uh, Marianne, the extreme I'm referring to your mention of people and, and vaccinations, the extreme of saying that was not an insurrection. It was really tourists strolling through the Capitol enjoying our nation's um, icon, uh, iconography. Um, so, typical day, typical day yeah. in Washington. Typical day in Washington, D.C., right. And so what, what I'm suggesting is part of the key to being a informed citizen in 2022 is trying to parse the difference between what is fact and what is fantasy and emphasize the, the facts rather than trying to play games with um, made-up um, realities. Again, going back to Daniel Patrick Moynihan, everyone is entitled to their opinion, say, about um, vaccination for um, COVID, but not everybody is entitled to their, their own facts, making it up, saying that, uh, say, if you got a shot for the COVID uh, pandemic, you'd be the government would really be planting a, a chip in your hair so they could follow you around. That's just bizarre. So bottom line, the key is trying to distinguish between uh, facts and uh, fantasy to made up uh, realities. Any thoughts about that? Well, I mean, you know, when I see that, I think about how we're all getting our information these days. And I'm not sure if I said this on the air or when we took our break, but back in the day, we were all sitting around the TV together, either listening to Walter Cronkite or Huntley and Brinkley, as Louise reminded me. And, you know, so we basically, there were three channels, ABC, NBC, CBS, and those were the three that we listened to. And they were basically uh, journalists giving out facts. Nowadays, we are, there are so many different ways that we can get our information. And people are taking advantage of the internet and the 57 channels, 157 channels, and nothing on TV to find whatever opinion agrees with their own. So we're, we're siloed. And I don't know how we get out of that. How do we get uh, somebody in the middle? And we, we've had Carol Delmonico on before and she's talked about the middle voice and how do we get everyone to listen to that middle voice and not be strung out on the extremes of one end or the other. I'm not sure how to do that. that that's good advice. And that middle voice seems to me would be the voice of moderation um, yes. and the voice of reason. Um, it also would be the voice of evidence-based conclusions, that people just don't go out and make up their own arguments and their own conceptions of reality without being able to evidence some data this essential data that I referred to a few minutes ago, without being able to evidence this essential data, which supports the particular fact that you're trying to argue. If we don't, if we are unable to break out of this silo, as you say, Marianne, of um, opinion taking the place of fact, we run the danger, the real danger of just ending up not believing anything. Again, I want to quote this 20th century political philosopher, Hannah Arendt, on what happens when, when brainwashing becomes very effective. Um, she writes, the result of brainwashing is a peculiar kind of cynicism, an absolute refusal to believe in the truth of anything, no matter how well this truth is established by evidence. In other words, 
the result of a consistent and total substitution of lies for factual truth is not that lies will now be accepted as truth and the truth be defamed as lies, but that a sense by which accepted truth allows us to take our bearings in the world and the category of truth versus falsehood is among the mental means to this end, and that is destroyed. So brainwashing leads to destruction of, of belief, leads to um, destruction of um, our ability to accept anything, be it a fact or a fantasy. So huh? are, are you suggesting that, you know, even people, when they're presented the truth or they're presented the, a lie, they can no longer tell the difference? Is that what you're saying? Yes, yes. Or knows that they don't really care what the difference is because they've become so... Um, jaded by constant bombardment by lies. Jim, where do you see this all going? A Canadian newspaper had an interesting editorial last week about Canada should prepare themselves for the civil war that's coming to the United States. What are your thoughts on that? Well, um, we're a country of um, 300 million uh, weapons and people who, uh, to use Edmund Burke's term, manners, run toward uh, gun culture and gun um, worship. Um, with that many guns floating around, it's, it's easy to imagine how a, a spark could set off a conflagration um, and uh, we'd be end up on two sides of, two opposite sides of, um, say, the issue of race. People um, on both sides have been animated, been energized by George Floyd's murder. On the right, uh, they are arguing against critical race theory, and he's saying that it injects race into um, an, an accurate understanding of American history. And on the other side, just the flip side, saying you cannot understand American history without race. It's not too difficult to imagine a situation where people with guns on one side and guns on the other, um, rather than talking to each other and discussing, just start uh, firing away at each other. The possibility of random acts of violence it's very high. I mean, every it's in the newspapers every day, right, friends? The latest one I, I read is a, a man who killed, shot and killed his 16-year-old daughter because uh, this guy thought he was uh, a house invader. Now, if we hadn't got, if we didn't live in a sea of guns, that might not have happened. If we didn't live in a sea of guns, it might not. The Canadian prognostication might have less bite, less credibility. I'm not a historical scholar or anything, but from what I learned about the Civil War, there was a pretty clear division between the North and the South in terms of where the battlegrounds were, where the fights were, who was on what side of the border. But talking about the fact that so many Americans now have guns in their homes throughout the country, and so many Americans throughout the country have differing opinions as to what the truth is, what the fake news is. You know, I can't imagine the type of civil war that we had. I mean, if I go to the brink and think about the most horrible thing I could think of, it would be more like different little battles throughout the country. What do you think about that? That uh, image um, is plausible, Marianne. Um, It's more plausible, than it seems to me, than the traditional trench warfare where you have a carefully um, and closely divided, delineated set of sides that can be sorted out. It would be much more like a marble cake, if I can use that uh, analogy, a marble cake civil war with different regions breaking up in different ways and allying themselves with other regions. It it seems to be complicated and and confusing. What, mess? Is that the right word? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Looking at this list of topics I wanted to talk about, aside from one I've labeled capturing uh, locales, um, I started with Jim Crow times two, 
and then did I wanted to offer people kind of a short calendar of events, not calendar of events, but historical calendar in terms of race in American life. And it, it ends up with guns <laughs> and uh, made perhaps civil war. I'm thinking about that. I'm calling this um, the facts of race in America or I, uh, a.k.a. critical race history rather than theory. Um, you start with 1619. That's the first year that black Africans were introduced to the United States and sold as slaves. And between 1619 and 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation and the end of the, and the end of the Civil War, you had slavery as legal in the United States, the buying and selling of human beings. From 1865 to 1876, a of 11 years, you had Reconstruction, which offered the promise but not the reality of a reconstructed South where race relations were not as fraught and African Americans were not as violated or oppressed. Ten years. 1864, 1876. From 1876 to 1954, you can do the math and the Board of Education, you had Jim Crow in the United States, which was a combination of economic oppression and terror that kept blacks in the, from voting in, the, and, uh, in, in an oppressed state. 1954, of course, was Brown versus Board of Education. Um, that period lasted until 2013. Does any, either of you care to venture to guess what happened in 2013? It's John Roberts, Chief Justice John Roberts, writing an opinion, essentially gutting Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, saying that uh, the federal government did not have the authority to enforce some um, racial integration on the South. Essentially, as, as I say, gutted the um, 1965 um, Act. Uh, from 19, from 2014 or 2013, you had kind of a stunned reaction and silence to the Shelby County versus Holder opinion. And then George Floyd was murdered. And from George Floyd's murder in 2020 until the present time, we have a series of increasingly antagonistic, polarized, and angry encounters, which, uh, which, uh, which reflects the increasing rise of white supremacy accompanied by anti-Semitism and uh, opposition to actually some suggesting burning books that raise the issue of race in the United States. And the bottom line here, the last point I have is in this flammable context where people's opinions are polarized and people pay very little attention to the facts, it's very possible that violence could break out randomly and spread because of the very, very amazing statistic of 300 billion guns in the country. So I, I end up kind of in the same place that um, um, Canadian article ended up, Louise. That's what I was going to just say. The Canadians don't appear to be that far off track. No, they don't. We're sitting here today where the voting rights bill that was brought up, you know, so many times. It was SB1, I think, in the House. It passed through the House right away. And now in various right. versions, it's been shut down in the Senate over and over and over again. And they started uh, dialoguing on it yesterday in the Senate once again. And I'm sure because of our two friends from Arizona and West Virginia, Senator Sinema and Senator Manchin, that they're not going to get anywhere in the Senate today. It's not going to pass. And uh, the filibuster is not going to be changed or amended just for this one particular bill. So I don't know where to go from here. Some people are talking about breaking up some of these bills that are not getting passed into individual 
pieces of legislation and possibly we might be able to find some bipartisanship there and but otherwise i mean i don't i don't see anything positive coming out of this do you want to comment yeah on the contrary it seems to me that um it's only going to have a negative effect on biden's already a visible um, job um, rating to me it's sort of puzzling that joe biden did all the right things came out of the blocks fast with two serious agendas having to do with the pandemic and um, infrastructure, made some initial headway with regard to the pandemic and in um, a modest um, infrastructure bill. But now he's going nowhere fast um, and inflation gnawing at his approval ratings. I'm with you, um, Marianne, it's, it's very depressing. Um, one thing occurred to me that I, in my notes I have down as a wild card, quote unquote, is the January 6th House Select Committee. Who knows what's going to happen with that committee? I imagine that they have some pretty explosive evidence, pretty explosive facts to come back to our word. Um, and those facts may or may not have consequences for Joe Biden's performance rating. But it's, it, it's fairly bleak this uh, winter of uh, 2022. Inflation. You brought up inflation, Dr. Foster. Yeah, inflation is... Uh, as I said, it's gnawing away at uh, Biden's um, approval rating. Um, and I, I don't think that he or any of his economic advisors have any magic bullet as to what to do about that. Again, it's tied up with a variety of things, ranging from uh, supply lines to um, chip paucity uh, to um, in inventories that are over uh, overpriced. I mean, it's a very, very difficult situation. So I'm going to change the subject. How's that? All right. Sounds good. Uh, All righty. <laughs> I mentioned Tip O'Neill to you to when we were off mic uh, talking about our conversation. Tip O'Neill was was probably one of the more influential speakers of the House for many years in the um, in the late '60s. Um, member of Congress from Massachusetts, a very colorful Irish uh, character, Irish American character. And his famous line is, "All politics is local." And I think that, um, with particular reference to um, guns and abortion and um, school board policy, the conservative right has been much more effective and much more um, successful by essentially doing what I call cat-fearing locales, starting at the grassroots at where politics is local and organizing in opposition to um, abortion, organizing in favor of gun rights, organizing in favor of certain curricula in the schools. Let me put this a different way. Um, there are many scholars, well, when they answer them, they pose this question. What was the primary result of Brown versus Board of Education? And you can say the same thing with what it was the primary result of Roe versus Wade. You two care to venture uh, any thoughts about that? From my point of view, um, I can see the little girl being accompanied by the sheriffs trying to walk up the steps of the school. And I, I'm not sure. I think that was in Alabama. From there on... It was in Little Pardon Rock, me? Arkansas. From there on, there was to be no discrimination in schools. But then what I remember about that was busing and how anxious white people were about having their kids bust to uh, neighborhoods that were mostly black kids. That was the, the big fight when I was in school. So I don't know. I mean, it didn't exactly work the way it was supposed to. Yeah, it didn't work that way at all because, in my view, one of the primary consequences of Brown, of Roe, and uh, efforts to uh, control guns, say, after Sandy Hook, was the right was galvanized and did an excellent job of organizing in opposition to abortion and gun control and um, segregated, uh, integrated schools. 
Brown versus Board of Education led to um, massive defiance by people in the South. Schools and public accommodations were closed throughout the, the, the South of the Mason-Dixon line. And in abortion, anti-abortion activists essentially went to work organizing the initiative and the, the momentum um, to get Roe overturned, which may happen um, this term of the Supreme Court. So my point is that we need to take to come back to, boy, is this depressing? What do we do, Marianne? What yeah. I would say is what we do, we take Joe Hill's advice. Joe Hill was a labor organizer um, in the Cofield. I mean, he was, he was um, framed as a murderer and executed. And his last words were, don't mourn, organize. And I think that is part of the response to um, the sort of malaise that we are feeling as trying to be informed citizens in 2022. We need some venue. We need some uh, vehicle. And that might be local organizations like school boards, um, like sports groups, like social groups, um, and make sure that uh, people have some sort of opportunity to um, make their opinions um, heard and make those opinions and shape those opinions in progressive ways. It would appear that the right has been more successful at that organization. For example, the Reawaken America Tour that was scheduled to come off at the Deschutes County Fairground is a nationwide tour. And uh, stir up the troops. What about the troops? Yeah, I mean, but to uh, to your point, Jim, uh, local, I don't know for a better word, liberals were able to organize this time and make a big stink about it and bring to light, you know, the conversations between two of our county commissioners in Deschutes and the sheriff and how they were uh, willing to look the other way in terms of health and mask mandates and such. And because enough people heard about it and read about it, now at least they've moved to a church in Salem and they're no longer going to be in Deschutes County. I mean, it's doing a geographic, but at least it's out of our area Local organization is what did it. Well, that's precisely my point. Local organization did it. Taking Tip O'Neill's advice that all politics is local did it. And people were mobilized and made made sure that their voices were heard. And the result was taking that thorn out of the paw of Central Oregon. Sure, it's going to be in Salem, and uh, it's going to happen one way or the other. But it's, I think that the, the residents and the activists in um, Deschutes County can uh, take some considerable satisfaction in their good work. And it's the kind of good work that, I, that I've been advocating in light of Tip O'Neill's advice. I think a good example of that also would be Stacey Abrams and all the work that she was able to do in galvanizing people to register to vote in Georgia. And it looks as if she's running again for governor. I, yep. I, I mean, I, we, we could take her playbook, you know, look at what she did and, and see if maybe we could use some of those things that she, her strategy um, throughout the country. Right. And, and Stacey Adrian's strategy is absolutely essential because if not, there's a, a unique flip-flop that's been taking place over the last, I'll say, decade or so, which is absolutely frightening. And that is that the, the way the system used to work is that voters chose office holders. Well, what's happened in the last decade or so is that that relationship has been just flipped such that office holders, through gerrymandering and um, changing electoral um, personnel, um, tinkering with uh, the pump plumbing, gerrymandering, voter suppression, voter constraints, over the past decade, the right has made significant uh, headway in, in, these, in this particular arena. 
So, Louise, did you want to ask about gerrymandering? As just exactly was what was on my mind. Jim, for those of us who are old and feeble and can't remember our civics class, give us a picture of what gerrymandering actually is. It is the drawing of district lines to advance the uh, interests and, and electoral success of um, the minor party. That's, that's for opener. How's that? Okay, that gives us a start. I, I think... Um, isn't there some, you know, like the Supreme Court of whatever particular state that this is occurring, which I think it's happening right now in Ohio for one place, that it's... Uh, Ohio yeah, North that, Carolina. In, I mean, I would imagine it's going on in all what would be considered the swing states. I don't know. Right. And uh, gerrymandering has a long history um, in the United States. It goes back to Elbridge Gerry, Belgier Gerry, but it's pronounced Gerry. He was one of the framers one of the founders, and he came up with this idea of drawing electoral districts to marginalize one party's electoral successes, or prospects is a better word, to marginalize one party's electoral prospects while enhancing the electoral process and, and uh, potential of the other party. Um, as I say, it's, it's as old as partisan politics in the United States, and the United States Supreme Court essentially has sanctioned gerrymandering Unless and until a case can be made that the gerrymandering is driven by by race or gender. That doesn't often happen. It happened in North Carolina most recently. Um, the Ohio um, districts maps have been sent, have been challenged um, legally. So it's, it's an ongoing tussle over the party in power using its power to insulate itself from electoral jeopardy and in the process relegates the... Um, minority party to a kind of a permanent minority status. I don't know. Has any of this uh, helped, Louise? Absolutely. Given our explanation of gerrymandering, how do you see the 2022 midterms going? It it will depend in part on the um, conscientious and consistent and successful efforts of people like Stacey Abrams. Um, One counter to, to gerrymandering is organization and getting out the vote. Now, of course, gerrymandering in conjunction with um, voter suppression, in conjunction with voter constraints, makes a pretty big mountain for people who are opposed to these um, efforts um, to overcome. So they have to double, redouble and triple their efforts to make sure that as many people who are eligible to vote as possible are, are registered. They can get to the polls and they can pass, cast their ballot even though the state legislature in Florida, North Carolina, Ohio, Arizona, the list is long and long. 19 states, in other words, 19 states out of the 50 have adopted some form of voter suppression, which can only be compensated by redoubling efforts to register, as I say, uh, registered voters, get them to the polls and make sure that they can make sure they can vote. So I guess that's what we're up to. I mean, in Oregon, I think we have pretty good active people on the ground. I mean, I'm not saying that it's limited. You know, it's not as if we don't have uh, conservatives on one side and liberals on the other, you know, in Oregon. But we do have some pretty active get out the vote um, activities happening within the Democratic Party of Oregon. I think a lot of the neighborhood groups have been very successful in making sure that people in their party get out and get to the polls. I don't know. Has that been your experience, Jim? Yes, there are lots of activists in Deschutes County and the Democratic Party. Now, in Oregon, by the way, it's not one of those states that's been engaging in, in um, stark 
voter suppression or any other sort of um, electoral shenanigans. So we don't have to deal with that, luckily. But even Thanks for listening to this KPOV podcast. KPOV is community radio for the high desert of Central Oregon. For more information and our program schedule, go to kpov.org. We value your feedback. Drop us a note at podcast at kpov.org.